going to talk with you guys today about a guy named George Whitfield. And my desire with this is, is to give you an example of someone inspiring and to inspire you. Uh, now, I just want to give a, a word of warning that this guy's life, George Whitfield's life was so intense, so disciplined that it can almost be like taxing to even hear about. Um, and, and so I don't want you guys to get weighed down by hearing about like how much this guy did, but rather I want, I want to let it inspire you. So if you have any type of like discouragement from like hearing like, oh my gosh, this is like crazy. Um, brush that off and let it just, in, let it inspire you. So I want you to, to just receive this. Um, and, uh, and I hope this is, is a good example for you to follow. But just like Matt said, with anyone in church history, anyone in history, uh, that everyone's going to have flaws. And George Whitfield was no exception to that. But today I want to focus on some of the things I think we can learn from his life. Um, so I want to give you guys a brief overview of Whitfield's life. And then I want to give you a couple of, of things that I think we can really learn and imitate from his life. Okay. So, um, I, but first I want you guys to finish this sentence. My life is worth nothing to me unless dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that sentence? My life is worth nothing to me unless. Is it, my life is worth nothing to me unless I find that perfect spouse. My life is worth nothing to me unless I graduate with the degree I want. My life is worth nothing to me unless I keep my health. Unless you fill in the blank. Um, I think this is an important question for us to think about because I see two examples. <laughs> There's two examples um, that, that I want to point out of, of people who I think really filled in this blank well. And, and the, the, first I want to point you to the Apostle Paul. And uh, I, I'm kind of using um, Acts chapter 20, verses 20 through 24 as, as a text that I want to keep coming back to tonight. And, and here is... Here's what the apostle Paul says. He says, I never shrink back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God. And if having faith in our Lord Jesus, and now listen to this, I am bound by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Do you see how Paul finishes that sentence? My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. I think that's such an example to follow. And, and for George Whitfield, I, I think he was one of the guys that, that I look to in church history who I think imitated Paul. 
the best. Um, he really had one, one thing that he felt his life, his life was about, and that was glorifying God through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is miraculously inspiring. Um, he was born in 1714 in Gloucester. It's a city in Southwest um, England. His father died when he was two years old. So he never really had a father to look to. Um, uh, Whitfield describes himself as a very sinful child. Um, he, he, he said, <laughs> he says he did all sorts of bad stuff. He had a foul mouth. He disrespected his mother. He was irreverent in church. Um, and, and his desire was not for God at all. Um, he, he, he tells of how he would steal money from his mom to go buy treats. Um, but here's, here's kind of what he puts as like one of the worst things. He played cards and read romance novels. Okay. And, and we, we, we look at that and we go, what, what's the big deal? But he, he, he says that he read, he, he did this to his heart's delight. That was what delighted his heart. And you might be going, Kevin, what's, what's the big deal? Why, why, is, why is it so bad for him to play cards and read romance novels? And I hope that that question is answered as you see how his life played out when it was transformed by God. When you see this total difference in what the delight of his heart was. And that's one of the things I think we can learn from him is that the delight of his, his, of his heart became God and not the things of the world. Um, let's see, Here, here's what he says about himself. He says, the young man in the gospel may have boasted of how he kept the commandments. So he's talking about this story where a man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the young man in the gospel says, I've done it. So Whitfield says, this young man in the gospel may have boasted of that. With shame and confusion of face, I confess that I have broken them all from my youth. Whitfield was totally aware of his sinfulness and desperation. Um, and, and he sees his sin very clearly from his youth. At 12 years old, he went to school and he proved to be a very, very bright young man. Um, he, he had an excellent memory. And even from that young age, people would ask him to give speeches because he had such a knack for public speaking. He loved plays and he loved to read plays and he would often um, act them out. His parents were innkeepers. And even though his, his dad had passed away, he would entertain the guests at, his, uh, at the inn that his parents worked at. At least that's from my memory. <clears throat> so he had a knack for, for being in front of people. Um, he just thrived in that. Um, during his college years was when he was really converted though. Uh, he came to college and um, he was from a poor family. And so he didn't really have money to just have a, his parents couldn't just send his mom couldn't just send him to college. So he basically worked as a servant doing uh, jobs for wealthier students. It was a very, very humbling position that he was in. And he met the, the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley, when he was at college and he joined their Christian challenge. Uh, it was called the Holy Club. And so this was a, a group of guys who would get together to help each other be holy. And they would go over uh, spiritual classics, books, and they would read them together. They'd talk about them together. 
and they try and encourage each other to, to, uh, live a holy life. But, um, the interesting thing is when he looks back at that, uh, him and I believe the, the Wesleys would agree. None of them were converted. None of them were actually saved at that point. So they're going, they're trying really hard to be good. Kind of like Luther was before his conversion, but they weren't converted. And I think that's an important thing for us to realize is that it's possible to try and do religion really hard and to not actually be born again. Um, but everything changed when Charles Wesley gave him a, a book in 1735 by a guy named Henry Scogel. Um, his, his last name is spelled S C O U G A L. And, um, and this is what he says happened. This is what Whitfield says happened as he read through that book. He says, at my first reading it, I wondered what the author meant by saying that some falsely placed religion on going to church, um, going to church. Sorry, I lost my, my place here. Going to church, uh, doing hurt to no one, being constantly in the duties of, of the closet. He's talking about prayer. And now and then reaching out to the, their hands to give alms to the poor, their, to their poor neighbors. Alas, I thought, I, if this be not the true religion, then what is? God soon showed me. For in reading a few lines further, that true religion was union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. He says, a ray, um, actually, that was, that was his quote. So, he, so something happened there as he was reading this. And, oh yeah, okay, here's what he says. I was looking for this, this second quote. He says, a ray of divine light instantly, uh, instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must be a new creature. So this is when he finally realized that he had to actually be converted, that God had to do something in his life and that he had to be born again. And that moment changed his life. Shortly after that in 1736, um, he started preaching. Um, he was ordained and he never stopped preaching till the day he died, literally hours before his death. He, had, he, was, he was preaching. Um, he became extremely popular as soon as he, as, as he started preaching. And to say that churches were a little bit crowded would be a severe understatement. They were packed wherever he would go. Um, he had this extreme gift for being able to preach. Um, but shortly after that, the Wesley brothers um, had invited him to come to Georgia. So he was, in, he was in England and they invited him to come to uh, Colonial American, America, to Georgia to help with an orphanage. His ship was delayed. And uh, so he kept preaching for a little bit. And by the time he made it to Georgia, John Wesley had already gone back to England and the ministry there um, biographers have said was just in shambles. Um, it was not going well. Wesley was pretty depressed about it. And, um, and they, they, he was helping to work with an orphanage 
And so he stayed there for two years. And then the Wesley brothers had basically turned over the ministry of taking care of this orphanage completely to George Whitfield himself. And so I want you guys to imagine a couple years from now, traveling across the world and being entrusted with providing for a house of orphans at, in, your, in your, your early 20s. Financial responsibility, that's on your shoulders. Making sure these kids stay alive, on your shoulders. Education, on your shoulders. They don't have parents. All of that is on your shoulders. And this was something that caused him a great deal of stress for the rest of his life. Um, he, th- this may have been one of his shortcomings to, to take on this responsibility um, so fully. But nonetheless, I think God really used that. But just imagine doing that. And, and that wasn't what he did full time. But for the rest of his life, that orphanage was his responsibility. And so what I'm gonna tell you about now is his preaching. And so in the midst of doing all of his preaching, he still had the burden of this orphan house on his shoulders for the rest of his life. Um, so when, when he came back from Georgia to England, he found that his, his reputation somehow had been damaged. Um, people didn't really want him to come preach at their, their, chur- their churches anymore. And that may have been because of the way that he taught about regeneration and being born again. And this was at a time in, in church history when when people did just go to church. Everyone was basically a Christian. Uh, they went through the motions. And so for him to, to, tell, to talk about conversion was a pretty big deal. Um, it seemed like people didn't really see their need to be actually converted. Um, this is what a biographer said about, about his theology. As to the substance of Whit- Whitfield's theolo- theological teaching, the simplest accounts I can give of it is that he was purely evangelical. There were four main things that he never lost sight of in his sermons. The four were, the first thing is, man's complete ruin by sin and consequent natural corruption of heart. Number two, man's complete redemption by Christ and complete justification before God by faith in Christ. Number three, man's need of regeneration by the spirit and entire renewal of the heart and life. And number four, man's utter want of any title to be considered a living Christian unless he is dead to sin and lives a holy life. So you can see why this may have ruffled some feathers, even though we might go, that sounds great. He he was, he was, saying that if one is truly converted, he's going to be dead to sin. He's going to live a new life. His life is going to be changed. It's going to be different. Another thing is when, when someone starts preaching the gospel like this, the enemy, the enemy puts a target on their back and is going to try and cause all sorts of conflict in, in that person's life. And so this all came to a head on one Sunday in 1739 when he traveled to a different town to to preach. He had been invited to preach. And as the service was beginning, sometime during the, the prayers or something that was before he was going up to preach, the church warden came up to him and said, I need to see your license to preach. And he went, what? 
no one had a license to preach. Like that, that was ridiculous. Um, at that time, no one really carried a license to preach and I don't have a license to preach here. So, but I, I guess that was a thing. And so he was, he was uh, not allowed to preach. It was kind of like one of those rules that's only there to enforce when there's someone you don't like, if, if you kind of know what I mean. Um, I was talking with Colin the other day uh, and, and we, were, we were talking about at McDonald's how there's actually like a sign, at least the one near SDSU that says, you, you only have 30 minutes to eat your food. So now I've never been kicked out but I guess if I was causing some problems, they could kick me out um, after 30 minutes. So anyway, uh, it may have been something like that. Um, and so what did he do? He, after the service, went out into the churchyard and he started preaching. And that was the start of him open air preaching. <clears throat> and from that point on, he would preach wherever he could gather a, pr- a crowd, in the fields, uh, anywhere he could go to, to gather a crowd of people, he would preach and people flocked to hear him preach. There were reports of at times 30,000 people coming to hear him preach at a time. 30,000 people. At, that's about as many students are at SDSU. So I don't know, how many students are at Chico? plus an extra couple thousand. So just imagine without a microphone, someone preaching to all of those students combined. That's miraculous. I mean, how he had the voice to do that, I don't know. Um, but, But this, I mean, this is what numerous accounts are saying that happened to him. Um, even news reports of that time, uh, report stuff like this. So, I mean, this is just incredible. Um, he preached over 18,000 sermons in his life. And you might go, I don't have anything to refer that to, to, to use as a reference point. Um, the average pastor today might preach 1,500 in their life. That's if they're preaching every, almost every week a year, you know, 50 weeks a year, maybe one or two weeks off for about 30 years. They might preach 1,500 sermons. Whitfield preached over 18,000. And that's a conservative um, uh, 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 estimate because if you, if you incorporate also informal t- talks and teachings, it, it, the number goes up to more than 30,000. Um, so this was incredible. He preached all over the world. He was a huge influence in America. Um, the Great Awakening is largely attributed, attributed to him uh, as well as um, Jonathan Edwards and the Holy Spirit. Um, no, God was, was really behind it all. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about his work week um, because his, his regular work week is just, I mean, the amount of discipline that he had is incredible. Um, his work ethic and self-discipline, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to say, fo- to, to encourage you guys to follow that. Like I want you to learn something from it, but it's almost to the point where I think it might be a little bit unhealthy. And he actually did have um, health problems that I, I think were maybe caused by some of how, how hard he worked. Um, but anyway, you can take, take what you want from it. Just don't kill yourself trying to, to work this hard. Um, let's see. Yeah, but I, I do think this can teach us that you can likely do more than you think you can. 
You likely can do more than you think you can. He preached 40 to 60 hours a week. Preached. That's not sermon prep. That's not logistical work. He preached. As in what I'm doing right now, 40 to 60 hours a week. And then instead of going home to rest, he would go home and oftentimes pray and write letters to the new converts, letters of encouragement to them, doing follow-up. Um, and he still had the orphanage to take care of. Um, his normal wake-up time was 4 a.m. Um, Jose, he, he's got you, man. Jose wakes up at 4.45. Uh, Whitfield's got, got a leg up. I, I can't even believe it. Um, he would preach in the mornings at 6 a.m. Most, most weekdays. So things were a little different than, back then, I can imagine, because I don't know how many people are going to hear people preach at 6 a.m. Um, but he did that. Um, and then he worked through the day, and then he also lectured at night. And... Um, and then, and then he would go to bed promptly at 10 usually. So he'd get about six hours of sleep a night. Um, here's what one of his biographers says about him. He says that any human frame could so long endure the labor he went through does indeed seem wonderful. I mean, it seems almost impossible. Um, he preached until just hours before he died. It was not even one full day after he gave his last sermon that he passed away and he died in 1770 preaching in North America. What a wonderful way to die. What an amazing way to die. He died with very little to his name. He, from, from his childhood till the day he died, he, he lived a, a relatively poor life. Um, he had his basic needs met, met but... I mean, some, some would say maybe he didn't even have his needs met. Um, but uh, he lived with very little. Um, he didn't have any great theology books to his name when he died. He didn't have a new denomination to his name uh, like, John, like Jonathan, uh, John Wesley and, uh, or Martin Luther. Um, he didn't have any curriculum to his name that he could point his followers to. He didn't even have like followers. Um, he, he just preached the gospel over and over and over. And although he didn't have any of those things, man, did he make an impact on the kingdom of God. One biographer says, never, I believe, was there a man who it could be said so truly that he spent and was spent for God. Hebrews 12 verse one talks about how we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And Matt referenced Hebrews 11, the chapter before that, that talks about the people of faith that have come before us. And these people have ran this race hard. And boy, did, jo did, did George Whitfield run this race hard. And, and I think he gives us an example of focus and throwing off anything that entangles us from the purpose that God has set out for us. So let's run this race hard. So what can we imitate from this guy? What can we imitate? I want to give you a couple things. The first thing I think is his perseverance through trials. It's interesting that this is one of those things that we saw with Luther and with many other, uh, many others as well. 
his perseverance through trials. His trials were oftentimes heartbreaking and painful trials. Um, they, and, and, and here's the interesting thing about these trials that he went through. He could have stopped them. He could have stopped them at any time if he stopped preaching the gospel the way he did. Now, it's one thing to go through trials in this life because we have to, and there's no way out, but it's a whole other thing to go through trials when the only thing that you would need to do to stop them is to quit preaching the gospel so boldly. I think we can really learn from this guy. Um, one of the, the big trials that he had was, was this conflict with his, one of his best friends, John Wesley. Um, they, they differed on, on the doctrine of election and, and how that worked out. Um, Whitfield was more of a Calvinist and that was the, Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, is that me? <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Um, so John Wesley publishes this book called Free Grace. Actually, I'm sorry. He, he writes this sermon called Free Grace and he gives it. And it was totally different from what Whitfield believed on the doctrine of, of election. And, um, and, and Wesley was about to publish this into a little booklet. Um, and Whitfield was far away from him, but he had heard rumors of this. And so here's what Whitfield says. He says, I hear, honored sir, you are about to print a sermon on predestination. It shocks me to think of it. What will be the consequences but controversy? If people ask me my opinion, what shall I do? It is noise ab abroad already that there is a division between you and me. Oh, my heart within me is grieved. He was grieved by this controversy between them. And Wesley did go ahead and end up publishing that book. And it was in a way a direct attack on Whitfield. Um, this was, was devastating in a way for George Whitfield. Um, and, and I know John Wesley was doing what he thought was right as well at the time. Um, but I think the enemy uses things like this. But in the midst of that, George Whitfield and Wesley committed to, be, to staying friends. It would have been like some of you guys sitting at tables together who were in the same college ministry, but later had a, a, a division in, in the way you thought about something theologically. Um, and, and George Whitfield actually continued to submit himself to John Wesley in the Methodist movement. And when you think of Methodism, you usually don't think of Calvinism, even though Whitfield was a Calvinist, but Whitfield submitted himself to Wesley. And before he died, Whitfield asked if Wesley would preach at his funeral service, his memorial service. And so Wesley gratefully did that. Um, Whitfield experienced extreme attack from the, from the, from the press. Um, he often had hecklers as, as he taught. Okay. Hecklers, that's like my worst nightmare. Do you know what that is? 
That's like when people like talk while you're trying to preach and like yell at you and make jokes and, and all that kind of stuff. It's super distracting. It's really discouraging. Like that's the kind of stuff that like just makes me want to cry and run off the stage, you know? And like, yeah, this is just like a few of you guys. But imagine if it was like 30,000 and I was trying to talk. Okay, that'd, that'd be really sad. But <laughs> here's what he says. He says, I was honored in having a few stones rotten eggs, dirt, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. Pieces of dead cats? I mean, like, we laugh, but I, I don't know if I would be able to keep talking if I had that happen. I just don't know what I would do. Um, and, and it gets worse. Listen to this. Drummers and trumpeters were hired to come distract people and play as he was preaching. Drummers and trumpeters are the most obnoxious instrumentalists, right? Like, I, actually, I really like the drums and, and trumpets, but, like, they are so loud. Like, you know, Josh was, like, jamming on the drums last night. Like, just imagine if, like, he came up here and was just, like, boom, boom, like, like playing. Like, there's no way I could keep going. And imagine if I didn't even have a microphone. That, that would be ridiculous. Um... But somehow he, he kept going through that. And, and I think, see, I, I think like Siri talking, you know, is a distraction or like a phone ringing is going to, is a distraction. Like pastors today are wimps compared to this guy. Uh, I think that like for any real good ministry training, we, we need to have a course on how to endure through trumpeters and drummers and pieces of dead cats being thrown at you. Um, you know, you just got to be ready for this stuff. But in all seriousness, this was likely very emotionally isolating for him. Um, and I, I think most pastors or preachers would, would say this isn't working. Like this is too hard. I've got to think of a different method. I've got to do something else. I've got to back down. Something's got to happen. I'm not, I'm not going to keep going. But Whitfield didn't stop, nor did he scale back at all in his evangelistic zeal. And we oftentimes get discouraged when someone says no to us when we want to do a survey. I think there's a lot to learn from this guy. Um, here, it goes to further extremes too because pe people ended up trying to take his life. Um, once he was nearly stoned to death, once he was nearly murdered in bed by an angry lieutenant of the Navy at Plymouth, once he narrowly escaped being stabbed by the sword of a young man, but he was immortal until the day he died. <laughs> he kept going. None of those guys, none of those guys killed him. Um, the, the, the hardship was seemingly unbearable. Yet he kept going through this. So my question is why? Why did he keep doing evangelism the way he did in the midst of this type of hardship? Why did he keep going on doing it this way? I mean, hadn't he heard of friendship evangelism? He could, that would have stopped it all and no one would have blamed him for it. He could have said, all right, I've given up on this field preaching stuff. I'm giving up on, on boldly sharing the gospel. 
And he would have still had an effective ministry. He could have gone on, pastored a church, influenced people, um, and no one would have known that he was being disobedient to the call that God had on his life. No one would have known. And it just makes me wonder how many of you guys are George Whitfields out there, but, but you've somehow been talked out of doing what you feel like God's called you to do because it's too crazy, because it's too risky, because it's unbalanced. I think all of those things could have been said about George Whitfield. He was risky. He was crazy. He was balanced. He was unbalanced. So why did he keep doing evangelism the way he did? Firstly, Whitfield had a crystal clear conviction of who he was trying to please. And so the application for you guys is to have a crystal clear conviction of who you are trying to, to please. I want to take us back to Acts uh, 20, 22 through 23, where Paul says, and now I'm bound by the spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. So the apostle Paul, he says he's bound by the Holy Spirit. He knows who he's trying to please. It's, it's God. It's God alone. That is his purpose. And I think there's real freedom that comes when we submit to one person. And when that person is God. He says, Whitfield says, I received many blows and wounds. One was particularly, particularly large and near my temples. I thought of Stephen. I was in great hopes that like him, I should be dispatched and go off in this bloody triumph to the immediate presence of my master. You can only have one master. Make sure you know who's your, who, who your master is and submit your life to him and pleasing him alone. Secondly, Whitfield had a, had a laser-focused vision about what God had called him to do. So that's the second thing for us. Have a laser-focused vision about what God has called you to do. One of his biographers says, he seemed to live for only two objects, the glory of God and the salvation of immortal souls. He raised no party of followers who took his name. A frequent expression of his is most characteristic of the man. Let the name of George Whitfield perish so long as Christ only is exalted. This was his attitude. We do not need to leave a legacy. You do not need to leave a legacy. You're here to glorify God and to see people come to know the Savior. That's what's going to matter. And I need this for myself as, as well. So... Why were cards and romance novels so bad? Because if those remained his delight, 
he would never have had the impact on the world that he did. The thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that may have come to Christ and be eternally saved, that would have never happened. And the people who those people then went on to impact because he was delighting in cards and romance novels. I think we can learn something from that. Do not be deceived. Whatever you delight in is going to impact and determine your life. Be careful what you delight in. Acts 20, 24 says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it to finish the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. I think Paul and Whitfield both shared this in common. They knew how to finish that sentence. My life is worth nothing to me unless dot, dot, dot. Once again, how are you going to finish that sentence? You'll finish that sentence by the way that you live your life. And I want to ask us, what if we finished that sentence the way that Paul and George Whitfield did? What if we finished that sentence? My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. What is that work for you? Let's use our lives for that. Another thing I think we can learn from him is, is from his radical compassion for the lost and passion for them to be saved. His radical compassion for the lost and passion for them to be saved. I think this is what compelled him to share the gospel in the way that he did. When we ask, why did he keep on doing it? I think these were some of the things that compelled him. He wanted the lost to come to know Christ because he cared for them. And so he kept doing it. So what was his secret? How was he such an effective evangelist? How come so many people wanted to hear him as he shared the gospel? I think one thing is clear, clearly he was gifted uh, in, in a way that maybe no other man since has been gifted in public speaking. But I think another thing is that he was aggressively intentional about sharing the gospel. He did not wait for opportunities to share the gospel. He created opportunities to share the gospel. So here's my first, uh, first point in this little section here. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, share it again. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, share it again. You may have heard uh, the, 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 the saying, preach the gospel at, at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which he may or may not have actually said. But this is in stark contrast to the life of George Whitfield from what we can learn from, from him. I, I, I don't want you guys to be deceived, and I, I don't think you are, but you will not lead people to Christ without words. You need to use words. And George Whitfield knew that full well. Um, here's what one of his biographers says about him. He did, he did not wait for souls to come to him, but he went after souls. He did not sit tamely at his fireside, mourning over the wickedness of the land. He went forth to beard the devil in his high places 
He attacked sin and wickedness face to face and gave them no peace. He dived into the holes and corners after sinners. He hunted up ignorance and vice wherever it could be found. Like a fisherman, he did not wait for the fish to come to him. Like a fisherman, he used every kind of means to catch souls. He was incredibly intentional. And I think we can learn from this. So the next thing is speak with authority, with the authority of Christ, not as if it's your own opinion. I think we see this in George Whitfield very, very, very clearly. And Paul, Paul says in Acts 20, 21 through 22, or uh, 20, Acts 20, 20 through 21, I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for the Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and having faith in our Lord Jesus. This was Paul's message. And this was not his own opinion. The message of the gospel is not your opinion. Do not share it as if it's just your own opinion. It is God's word. And he's called us to be ambassadors for him, to be messengers for him. And so we can share it in that way. I remember when I had first came on staff, there was a, a student named Ethan who was a junior or a senior at the time. And uh, he had a passion for sharing the gospel. And, and me and him were going out together on campus and trying to spark up conversations with people. And we saw this group of BMX riders, like practicing tricks and stuff. And so, you know, we thought we'd go up to them and try and talk with them and do a spiritual survey. And, you know, they were really cool, probably cooler, a lot cooler than me. And, uh, and so I was a little intimidated, but we went up to them and we started talking and um, they, they rejected the gospel. And I remember I, I said something like, oh, no worries, man, that's cool. And uh, have a good day or whatever. And, and I, I didn't, I, I was just very nonchalant about it. And as I was walking away, away from that, Ethan turned to me and he was like, Kevin, what are you doing, man? You don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. So the reality of it was that those BMX riders needed Jesus. He was their only hope of eternal life. And I said, no worries, bro. That's cool. That's cool. No big deal. That wasn't cool. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes Romans 1 16. Here's what was said about George Whitfield. He never used the indefinite expression. We, which seems to be peculiar, peculiar, peculiar to English pulpit oratory and which leaves the hearer's mind in a state of misty confusion as to the, the preacher's meaning. He met men face to face like one who had a message from God to them, like an ambassador with tidings from heaven. I have come here to speak to you about your soul. That was how he preached. So be bold, be direct, be 
very, very bold <laughs> because their eternity is at stake. It's not, a, it's not just your shallow opinion. The next thing is let your attitude in which you share the gospel reflect the reality of what you preach. Let your attitude in which you share the gospel reflect, your adi- re- reflect the reality of what you preach. I, I think this is so important because the way, the way that we share the gospel, it, it doesn't make sense if we're just nonchalant about it. If, if the reality that we're speaking of is, is eternity. And, um, and I, I saved this for last because I think it's so important because we've all seen people who, who speak a message of truth, but there's a tone of judgment to it, right? And, and then at the same time, we've also seen the, the other error where, where we don't want to speak the truth fully. And so we kind of um, ignore sharing the gospel or we do it in apathy. And yet the gospels call us to share the truth in love. And this only comes when our attitude matches the reality of what we're doing. I had a friend, his name was Joseph, um, when I was in, in East Asia. And I remember we, we had a Bible study together and we had invited some of our non-believing friends and Josh Jenkins was there. And, and, uh, and as we got to the end of the, the Bible study, we started sharing the gospel. And I remember my friend Joseph looks across the table at one of the people that he had invited. And with tears in his eyes, he said, I want you to know this because it's true. And I care about you. I care about you so much that I want you to know this. And, and that really impacted me because the way that he shared the gospel reflected the reality of the message that he was sharing. Um, George Whitfield could have been labeled as a Turner Burn preacher. If you just looked at his message and, and read through it, you'd go, that's Turner Byrne preaching. He, he was not afraid to preach about hell and that we all deserve to go there. But he rarely ever got through a sermon without weeping for the people he was, he was sharing with, without tears in his eyes for the people that he was sharing with. He was not happy that anybody was going to hell. And, and the people that he was preaching to caught on to that. One man said, I came to hear you intending to break your head. That's, that's crazy. But your sermon got the better of me. It broke my heart. One biographer said, once you become satisfied that a man loves you, you will listen gladly to anything that he has to say. You guys, if people realize that we love them as we're sharing the gospel, they're going to be so much more eager to listen to what we have to say. But if we're just preaching this message like it's no big deal, doesn't matter, take it or leave it. I don't really care about, care about you. I just, this is just what I'm doing. Why would they listen to us? The way that we share the gospel needs to match the reality of the message of it.
Never perhaps did any preacher so thoroughly succeed in showing people that he at least believed all that he was saying and that with his whole heart and soul and strength were bent on him making them believe it too. There was a holy violence about him. He was not afraid to let people know that he was there to convert them, but they knew that he loved them. I think we can learn from that. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to live to please God alone? Are you going to find clarity in what you've been called to do? Will you share the gospel, not because it's your opinion, not because it's your belief, but because it is a message of God to the people that you are speaking with? Will you preach it in a way that matches the reality of what, is, of what you are saying? So this is my desire for you guys, to be inspired, to see an example. How are you going to finish that sentence? My life is worth nothing to me unless dot, dot, dot. Let's live out our answers. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take a little time to uh, discuss some of those questions, and I used a lot of time, so sorry about that. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the message that you have entrusted us with. Would you light a fire in us like you did in George Whitfield to preach boldly, knowing exactly who we are here to please? In your name we pray, amen.